Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Eleven, and this is a comics podcast. This is a podcast for comics fans who know that it takes no complications to dance to the rock and roll station, and it was all right. But that doesn't mean we still can't read a graphic novel about it. Today, I'm joined by a cartoonist with a new graphic novel out called All Tomorrow's Parties, which is about the formation and dissolution of the Velvet Underground. To paraphrase Brian Eno, the Velvet Underground didn't sell many records, but everyone who bought one went out and started a band. And they're a band that's incredibly dear to me. And I'm so excited to see them be represented in a graphic novel form by a fellow fan. And I'm always excited to talk about the ways comics and music interact. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Ren Shadmi. Ah. Hello, hello. Hey, nice to be here. Karen is an American-Israeli award-winning illustrator and cartoonist. He studied illustration from the School of Visual Arts in New York, where he now teaches. His books have been published internationally and include In the Flesh, The Abaddon, Highwaymen, Rise of the Dungeon Master, The Twilight Man, Rod Serling, and The Birth of Television, and most recently, Lugosi, The Rise and Fall of Hollywood's Dracula, which I read and was very good. I'll probably ask a couple questions about that as well today. Uh, he has contributed illustrations and comics to the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Businessweek, Playboy, Mother Jones, the Washington Post, Boston Globe, Wired, and many others. His illustration work has won several awards at the Society of Illustrators. So welcome to the show. I always want to just start off asking folks, like, how did you get into cartooning? Did you read a lot of comics as a kid? Were you artists of a different sort? Or how did you get into the medium? I grew up in Israel and... Comics work there. There was no, there's no comics culture. Now there is a little bit more, but especially when I was growing up, there wasn't much of that. When you ask someone about mm -hmm. comics, they would be like, oh, the thing inside Bazooka Joe, because the oh, gum, really? the bubble gum in Israel was common. And those were the kind of comics that people knew about, which were, in retrospect, those are kind of awful too. But lucky enough to go to a class after school class for comics with one of the few people in Israel that was making a living just for making comics and a comic that ran in the popular teenage magazine that was kind of a version Israeli version of Archie and I took his class for many years and then I became his assistant pretty young when I was 14 or 15 and I started coloring his comics and he had a great collection at home and in his studio and he would let me borrow things. And he was mostly into superhero comics and more mainstream comics, but mm. he had a lot of interesting stuff and, and education. That's what got me into it. And that's what got me started. And I haven't stopped since. Oh, fabulous. And you, you open the graphic novel talking, uh, no, it's at the end of the graphic novel. You talk a bit about how you got into the Velvet Underground as a band. I think it's so telling that basically everybody finds the Velvet Underground as a teenager. Nobody finds them as a child. <laughs> and not as many people find them as an adult. But that's this moment where we all discovered the the group. And I'd love to have you share some of that origin story with the Velvet Underground. Yeah, I, you know, my music chain, my music taste uh, was changing during my teenage years. And I think growing, being a teenager in the 90s, you were really, I was really into grunge and the kind of music that was popular at the time. 
And uh, it takes a while to find out that all that, all those bands owe a lot to the Velvet Underground. I think one of the first records I bought, it was a CD. I, it was like the the high high point of CD, CD period. But it was an REM CD, and REM were big followers of the Velvet Underground. And there was songs that I listened to that were Velvet Underground covers that I didn't even know were covers. And so it took a while. I was exposed to them late. And I think with a lot of, with a lot, a lot of people can relate to being exposed to certain music, not in a chronological manner, but rather like digging back in time and going backwards and backwards. And Mm. everybody has its point his point where it stops. But for me, it was getting first into the bands that were maybe popular in the 90s and 80s, and then only later on finding out about the Velvets. For me, it's also really aligned with comics because I literally bought... I I was reading X-Men before this, but I literally bought the first issue of Sandman I ever bought from the same thrift store that I also bought Velvet Underground and Nico on tape, like possibly in the same shopping trip. Nice. That's a good shopping trip. Right? And I got a really good vintage shirt there that I still have held on to, even if it doesn't fit me. Yeah, you you hold on to these things. So what, what made you think about representing the band's story as a graphic novel? I did two books, The Humanoids. The first was about Rod Serling, and the second one was about Bella Lugosi. And they asked me, what's what's next? And so I gave them, I believe, two or three options. And one of the options was the Velvet Underground. And I really wasn't sure if there was a full story there. I was just reading various accounts. I didn't do any kind of deep dive, but it really sounded like there was a good story there. So they told me, if that's what you want to do, go for it. And, and then I started doing the research and reading the books and realizing, yes, there definitely is a story here. This, this band was ahead of it. They came up with a kind of music that no one has heard before. The lyrics were ahead of the time. You know, everybody was singing in the 60s about free love and the hippie movement was starting to, to form. And, and meanwhile, the Velvets are singing about scoring dope and all this type of stuff that no one really wanted to talk about in the media or anywhere. It was discussed, it was, it was subject matters that were covered in books. And you see it mm-hmm. in, the, in the graphic novel to Lou Reed talk about some of, some of his influences. And he, he studied under a guy who was a very famous poet and he basically was exposed to a lot of these like mid-century gritty writers. And, and that, that was translated in time into music. And he wanted to bridge this, this idea or kind of create a bridge between that literary mentality and pop music, with, which no one really mm-hmm. did before. It was like everybody considered back then pop music to be this thing where you sang about love or you sang about these these surfing or whatever subject matter was was accessible and easy to digest. And he said, why? We can sing about anything. In poetry, you can write poems about anything. So why not try to, to bridge that gap? 
And one oh, of the going that I yeah, one of the things that is so it's funny but sad to me is there's two moments in the in the book where you have Lou Reed and Frank Zappa be pissed at each other. And it's just so funny because it just reminds me of the Spider-Man pointing at himself meme where it's, this is the other person who's into that. Like you guys who hate each other, like you're both, you hate, you also hate the same people and you also have so many of the same tendencies, but then the way it's expressed in the music and the different sense of humor and the cultural orientation of the Velvets being the ultimate New York band and Zappa being much, is like their LA is although certainly not Hollywood, means that they just do not understand each other. And yet there, there's so much in common because that's the other artist who's actually, we're going to do bizarre, absurdist art that is seriously re- referencing and pulling from avant-garde music. And we really hate hippies. Like it's, it, it, there's just so much in common. And it's funny that I, I hadn't really seen that so clearly until m- more recent years because of, I guess, some of the some of the aesthetics being so wildly different in the end. Yeah. Yeah. The both yeah. Zappa and the Velvets, there were documentaries about them done recently, both excellent documentaries. The the Velvets documentary was Todd Haynes, which was really great. Yeah, I well, forget who did the one about Zappa, but they both existed in the fringe. And the fact that Zappa became as successful as he was is is a little bit of a fluke where he or I wouldn't say a fluke but you know it's surprising because he really he was criticizing America he was pointing out all the the things that were wrong and 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 singing about things that were not sung about but yeah I guess they just rubbed each other the long, the, the wrong way and there's a lot of that with Lou Reed he's just this very antagonistic person and Perhaps also Zappa to an extent. You yes, know, they're both these <laughs> it's so funny. Grumpy people. I forget if Zappa is. I don't think he's Jewish, is he? No, but no, both he's these, not. Uh, he's Italian. Yeah, yeah, they're both these grouchy guys that are easily ticked off. Yes, yes, and I, they definitely have some real content. Like there's the perfectionism and the improvisation and the contrast, and definitely disagreements over what are the proper drugs to use or not use at all. But yeah, I, I, I it's interesting. There's, there, this is a book that you created that has so many interesting snapshots from history, things that I, as a big nerd about this stuff, know things that. I hadn't really seen put together that way. I would really encourage folks who, if you're a fan of the band, whether much of, whether you quote unquote everything about them or you know nothing and are just curious, like this is definitely a book that you can get something from. And one of the things that I really thought about as I was looking at it was the, you're, you're going through material that has so much visual reference to draw from because of how obsessively documented everything from the factory period was but then so little from before that, right? Yeah, there's a, a there's a wealth of visual reference for certain things. Definitely the factory, since this was this, this hub of artists and Warhol was always with the camera and always shooting things with, with on film. And also he had photographer friends that were there. So there was always some someone documenting things. So there's a lot of that, but... If you look before, there's really not a ton. Like there's no, like I wouldn't be able to to find pictures of, of Pickwick records or where Lou Reed 
right. started his recording career or things like that. But you, you make things up when they're not available to the best of your knowledge. And in general, there's, there was a lot of visuals to draw from, which was, which was great. But also, it's, it's a lot of work because I want to see how New York looked like in the 60s in a certain period of time. I have to comb through all these photos and find the right photos that fits the, the scene. So, and also just make sure everybody looks the way they, they should look. So visually, it would, may have been the most challenging book I've ever worked on. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me also just because it's like this t- it's this whole time period that's so mythologized and everybody has really who feels passionately about it has a very specific idea of how everything should look and feel. It's a lot of pressure. So I've also just have to be like, okay, we're not going to have exactly the same take on everything and that's fine. I think that you know, we're looking at history that has so many different voices and perspectives in it that you're not going to be able to get a single version of the story. So, which again, like that, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why it's cool for a graphic novel, right? Like you are, you very much center the story here very reasonably, really as a parallel story between Lou and John Cale in particular in the book. And, and one of the things that really struck me was how you even draw the, how you even, the way you do, the way you cartoon them in the, in the, in the bulk of the book, their faces are even opposites. Like your John Cale is extremely convex and Lou is very concave. And it's exaggerated in that way. And it's, I mean, when, when I compare that sort of default cartooning of their faces to the way, and I love this decision when you have, when you, you have Warhol's screen tests in the book and you have them drawn much more photorealistically to mimic the style of the photographs that the style of the film that you're quoting, you're, you're making choices in how you are characterizing people's faces when you're doing them in that more cartoon format. So I wasn't sure if if that was a piece of, you know, how you were how you were developing them visually as characters. Yeah, they have to be interesting to draw. You have to exaggerate a little bit, but you don't want it to be too too exaggerated. You're, you're picking the tone of your book, and if I drew Lou Reed with with like big manga eyes and and cartoony features and John Cale with whatever exaggerated features, then it would send a different message. It would be like, this is a goofy, funny book where it really isn't. But at the same time, I don't want it to be too serious. So I want it to be expressive. And so, you know, I've pushed things a little bit and and my Lou Reed uh, looks a little bit like Frankenstein at times because there is something about his face that I think he even made allusions to that. He was very interested in, in I think, in, in, in that. In, in Frankenstein is, is just like this kind of big forehead that goes forward and, and eyes that are sunk deep in, in, the, in the face. And so, yeah, that's always a fun, fun thing to do. And, and people have depicted, there's been a couple books, graphic novels about Andy Warhol already. So I tried to do my own. Mm-hmm. Andy Warhol, but again, I didn't want him to look too goofy and cartoony, so I did my best to to capture him. But he also has he he had a kind of a difficult face, I would say, to more difficult face to capture. I can see that. I, I think he did a great job. I mean, I'm a big Warhol nerd as well, and I, I was really impressed with how you are able to capture his ma- speech mannerisms without it 
being over the top because it's way too easy to make it a cartoon. But then if you don't actually go there at all, it doesn't it doesn't seem like him. Yeah, he he had a very interesting way of talking and he was just like would rather have other people talk than him and I think it was partially because he was he was very shy and he wasn't he wasn't a great speaker for sure, but there's something there's something about he's very enigmatic and very mysterious and even there's a there's a quote I think yeah I think I wrote into the book where Lou Reed says I usually am able to to figure people out and I could not crack that the Andy Warhol's what makes him tick because he is so strange and I come to think about if we're still talking about likenesses I think the most difficult character to catch was actually Nico and I think that's mm-hmm. because really beautiful characters are harder to draw because I, I don't know there's something really really that was really difficult for me in capturing her but i think at the mm-hmm. end what happened was that i drew try to draw her face shape without hair when i found there's some some earlier photos of her with no her hair lifted up i was like oh that that was yeah. there there we go that's the shape of her head and once i figured out the shape of her head then I was. It's so interesting because I just think there's a, there's like a split between artists, cartoon comics artists for like a big chunk of people cannot draw anybody who doesn't look like a fashion model. And the other half are like, I can't draw people who look too perfect because this is, this is the, the, the the complications and nuance of faces that are more unusual is more attractive to me. And it's what I feel appeal to drawing. So it's so, it's interesting to see what, which line of that people fall on and, I think a lot of the folks who spend more time on superheroes. Yeah, this is this is a really interesting it, people who have specific and unique faces. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. It's something that I think about a lot, especially when I look at mainstream comics. I'm very turned off by the way that people draw faces, and it's just it's very idealized. It doesn't even matter if it's superhero or just like your run-of-the-mill I don't know I, I can't give a good example but it's just everybody's super handsome the eyes are like really sparkly and the women are just like like you're saying they're all just like supermodels and it's just this is not this is this is not real life and this is not how people look and and it's just there's something a little bit I don't know I don't know how to describe it but almost like kissing up to the characters that you're drawing and especially I think when you're dealing with nonfiction, these are real people so you have to treat it with a level of realism and at the same way that I'm not trying to build like some rosy picture of of my subjects I would also try to not draw them in some sort of like overly handsome way. Although some, although a friend of mine said that the way I drew John Cale would make him very happy. So I don't know if that meant that I like did idealize him a little bit, but I don't know. I, it's not wrong, but it's definitely one of the more flattering portrayals, but that's okay. Like it's an aesthetic decision. I, 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 but and you're and you're making these choices in interesting ways. Like you have a scene where Paul Morrissey, who's filmmaker partner with Warhol, is like telling Lou, "You have to bring on a chanteuse to sing with the band." And suddenly, at the perspective, like Lou is tiny on the page, and he's not that small in any of the other frames. Like you're you're, you're telling a story with these with these illustrations in that way too. 
But yeah, like I, one of the, one of the real big things I've been really thinking about is here we have a, you've written a book about a band that you love, presumably featuring artists who you really love and respect. And it's by no means like hyper complimentary, particularly towards Lou. And we're in this time where I think people like want everyone to make a ruling on is this a good person or a bad person? And if you like somebody's music, that means you're endorsing the entirety of who they are as a person and as an artist. And like this, your book is just, that's not what we're here to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's so exactly how you, right. Yeah. yeah, this is this is something that I have these conversations often with my wife because she, I feel like she subscribes more to that. People either good or bad. And if someone does something bad in their life, then it, it immediately labels them a bad person and we shouldn't discuss them or we shouldn't deal with them. And I think people are complicated. Artists are a lot of times flawed and damaged individuals that are driven to art because of things that have happened to them in their past. We see with Lou Reed that he is, Lou Reed is, is comes from a very problematic background where his parents couldn't accept him for who he was. They tried to fix him and ended up causing him so much trauma and, and pain. So I think that to me, I'm, I'm attracted to these characters that have very distinct ups and downs and, and uh, could, could have very damning moments in their lives, but maybe are not necessarily evil people. So it's, it's, it's very complicated when you deal with that. And we just saw a very belated, we saw Oppenheimer in the theater. And I think that was another, mm -hmm. this is another character who's like very, and I'm not sure if he fully captured that, but he's just like a complicated character that, that it's not really clear if you can put him in the bracket of the the bad people or the good people, and and I think that make that does make it in more interesting. Where it's like, what does what drives a person to be like that? And you get that complexity while you're when you're working from from true stories from like real people. Mm -hmm. You get that further depth and and further complexity that's really hard to come up with when you're doing a fiction graphic novel, which I've done before. And it's, it's you, if you want to get that depth, mm -hmm. you have to base it on, on a real person. Oh, that's interesting. One of the things I liked as much as this is very much told as Lou and John's story is you have a couple of really good moments with Mo Tucker in here, the drummer who I feel like she's someone who is really undervalued when people talk about the band and yet the band really did not undervalue, did not, it doesn't seem like the band undervalued her. And I, I just, I appreciated getting those, those moments from her. Was a lot of that from her book or from other observations? The, the book does focus more on Lou and John. So it was, I tried my best to give little moments where, you know, Sterling and and Mo could could shine a little bit. And I, I have to admit, I did not read like a biography dedicated specifically to her. But I feel like I, I started getting, you know, sense of her personality. And she seemed to have been the glue 
holding the band a little bit because she was the most stable one. And they're all just like these really volatile people. And so I tried to put that in that she, she was, she was cool in her own way. And she, her kind of stability or almost you could, you make the comparison to her playing like a steady backbeat of music added to them sticking Mm -hmm. for as long as they did. And which I think without her or with someone else, they may have broken up after the first album. So she was definitely a, a good mm-hmm. influence. But yeah, the, the, Lou Reed and John Cale are both these like really strong person- personalities. So it's very hard to compete when you have people that are really intense. Yeah. And you frame the story in terms of opening with the death of, of Warhol. I, I think you brought a really interesting perspective about Lou's searching for father figures through and, and mentors throughout his career and then his struggle with that. Yeah, he had a, a not a great relationship with his father. He was more close with his with his mother and his father was just like a working man that wanted him to be an accountant and have a steady job and his dad really didn't get him. And and I don't know what part of of him going to electroshock treatment was the dad or the mom, but I feel like he blamed his father more. And then in college, he had a class with Delmore Schwartz, who was the this famous poet. And all of a sudden, he had this this father figure who was this really intense, crazy writer and, and someone who got him. And again, with Warhol, like this was someone who got him, who appreciated him for who he was, who who liked the fact that his sexuality wasn't clear and and understood like all the the places that he was coming from and the kind of art that he was trying to make. So so yeah, I think that that was something I tried to convey. But he he was always like even if you continue reading about him after the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed is someone who's always searching, who's never really at ease, and he's always looking for something looking to find himself, looking to find some some deeper meaning. And that's an interesting journey. Mm. Did you listen at all to his last album, to Lulu? No, I did not. I think I listened to The Crow or something. This is years ago, but Raven. I am. Yeah, yeah The yeah. Raven. I was, I'm a big fan of his, his albums from the 70s and maybe maybe early 80s, but I don't think I really went past that. And there's some albums that I absolutely can't listen to, like metal machine music or sure. stuff like that. But uh, no, yeah. I did not. Is it, do you like yeah. it? Do you like, did you like Lulu? No, I mean, it was, it was, it was, I hadn't listened to it because I was like, why would I do this? It's just going to sour my feeling. But I had a number of young people who I know from comics fandom actually asked me for my take on it. And it was interesting because I had not really thought about Lulu as being this like nickname for Lou Reed. And it really got me thinking a lot about, and just specifically like how much of a heavy topic gender is throughout his lyrics. And it's not just a question of telling the stories or certainly mythologizing and sensationalizing the lives of trans women in his life and the lives of drag queens in his life, but that there's also stuff for him in there. And listening to Lulu, which I, I think I describe it as being like, it's Metallica. And so being Metallica, at some point, they will improvise their way into some really good riffs. Um, yeah. And being Lou Reed, at some point, he will improvise himself into some really like heavy, intense 
like gendery lyrics, but at no point in time does anything become anything vaguely resembling a song. Right. Um, because who's going to tell, who's going to tell Lou Reed or, Met- or Metallica no? But I, I, I'm glad I listened to it because it was interesting, but it is really hammered home to me that aspect because it's, he, I don't know, man. He's just straight up digging into that in the words from that album in a personal, clear way that isn't being put into like third person or, or second person or any of that stuff so much of his earlier music is. It's actually pretty wild. Yeah, in in that sense, like you're saying, they were Lou Reed was way ahead of his time. Now everybody's discussing gender, gender fluidity, and in the '60s, this was real fringe, fringe stuff. And and also, I don't really cover that era because that's not covered in the book. But at some point, the factory also became this kind of center for 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 these really fringy New York characters that were a lot of gender and drag queens. And all these people would come to the factory and and, and both Lou and, and Andy really enjoyed the personality, the 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 craziness, the the fun and, and just these these really colorful pe- people that were not ignored by society and and mm-hmm. shunned and now they're i don't know like 50 years 60 years later all of a sudden everybody's yeah let's let's put them in center stage and and back then it was real like unheard of and i think that's part of the the whole mentality of that's one reason that Lou Reed and and Warhol really connected cuz they had that punk mentality of mm-hmm. let's bring in let's bring in something that upsets people that really like rubs them the wrong way and society was so much more buttoned up back then that just having Warhol bringing these people in and then having people like Jackie Kennedy and like really like upper crust New York yeah. people come to <laughs> over there and just like in such a crazy, crazy mix. That's really interesting. And and while doing I the mean, research, I also found out that, that Lou dated for years. He, he had a, a girlfriend mm-hmm. that was transgender named Rachel. So it's really yeah. uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think there's this complicated aspect of desire of artists to be oppositional to society and to say, like, deliberately trying to freak out the squares. And there's so many moments of the band specifically trying to freak out the squares. And and then there's also people who are by nature different and outsiders and, like, maybe don't necessarily want to be targeted as being outsider or freak, but just are different. And so then you have, there's this tension where it's like, are you, are you exploiting people? Oh yeah. Are you making them, are you, are you setting them up? Are you sending them up to be attacked? Yeah. That's the, that's, if, if you did a book just about the factory, that is one of the major questions. It's just, was Warhol using these people? Was he using Edie Sedgwick? When you look at her, she was, she was used. They were friends, but also, that she was exploited, but when you look at you look at Warhol, it's almost like a projection of where television and movies would be today. And now you have reality TV, mm. and it's all exploitative. and And I think that's that's that was part of it. He loved it. He loved E, and he loved like all these these colorful characters. But he also he used them to make his image more enhanced and to have people find the factory in him more interesting. It's a major question. 
I think Lou Reed is a little more authentic, maybe in that sense, because he just wanted to document these people. So he's just, this is an interesting character. I'm interested in the fringes and I'm interested in the outsiders and I'm going to write songs about it. And he is one. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative that the narrative about how other people talk about Lou's life is no longer like he used to maybe think he was bisexual. It's, no, he was bi. And then eventually he, he married a number of different women. And that doesn't mean he's not bi. And this is a story that acknowledges that this is not like a performance. There's plenty of things that are a performance, but that is not that is not one of them. Although spe- speaking of like performance, you have this book could potentially just have been so many just pages of like art uh, of the band playing instruments on a stage, but you are making sure that you're really capturing the environment in which they are performing. And you're looking at the light and the color and then the the responses from the audiences. And uh, that's just like essential. I think when you're doing a book about a band. Yeah. I don't think I'll be doing another book about a band ever probably because I just Mm. drawing so many people and also Turns out drawing guitars is really difficult. And so I don't I don't think I want to do it again. It's great. I'm happy. <laughs> I'm super happy with the way the book came out, but it was definitely more visually and work-wise, it was more than I bargained for. Because also, mm-hmm. yeah, like you say, I take I take effort, you know, everything looks authentic and and the shows look like they're they're shows from the era. So yeah, it's it's just a lot of work. So but how do you how did you think about representing visual arts? by other artists like you have so many warhol pieces in this book right like how are you representing his paintings and his silk screens and all of that on the page here i made sure for once to redraw them because i didn't want to get into any legal battles so this is my (laughs) version of warhol's prints which are always a copy of something else. So it's like a copy of a copy of a copy. Yep. But it was interesting to see his his visual history and also to find out that he actually did some art that was that was copies of comic book frames and comic book characters before he got really famous. And he did that I think around the same time Lichtenstein did did his artwork or maybe even before. Mm-hmm. But I didn't put those in there because they were not from that period. I just tried to make sure that like they were from the right period. So I don't have anything that <clears throat> is from, let's mm. say, the 70s showing up in the factory in 1965. Right. That would be wrong. And the other funny thing that I found is that he had one silk screen of from Dracula of Bella Lugosi, mm. which is called The Kiss. So I was like, I have to put that in the book. So I snuck that in somewhere. Yeah. On my second read through, I noticed that I was like, Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> I I actually didn't immediately put two and two together that because I had I had read your Bella Lugosi book. When it came out, I got in a review copy and I just hadn't processed that. Oh, this is the same the same person who did it actually. So it's, it, it was just interesting, because I think that it certainly would appeal to a similar readership. There's a lot of crossover, funny crossover moments where I'm sure you've seen the the pictures of of Andy Warhol and Nico as Batman and Robin. There's I forget. There's other stuff. There's a lot of I know that Warhol liked Dracula. He, his name was his nickname was Drella, which is a Dracula and Cinderella together because supposedly he was drinking the blood of of his or, or just kind of like almost energy vampire, whatever you would call it. So, so yeah, there's a lot of like funny little crossover moments. 
I actually should just ask a little bit. Tell me about some of the genesis of the Bela Lugosi book for you. That book was, again, The Twilight of Man, the, the book about Rod Serling did well for the publisher. And they said, who's the next subject matter? <clears throat> and I was already in that kind of mind frame of Hollywood, film and TV. And, and I, I was like, why don't I, I pivot to another kind of Hollywood star, but someone who is different, is, is famous for other reasons. But in, in kind of that general same sphere of fantasy and horror as Rod Serling was, and he was perfect. I had the story in the back of my head that I listened to a podcast about his his life story years before I pitched the book, and I was like, he'd be a good subject. And so I reread his Wikipedia, and I was like, that this would be great. And and so that's that's what happened. Hmm. I loved getting all of his pre-Hollywood history and his union activism. Yeah, it's surprising because later in life, he didn't seem like someone who was very concerned with like social <clears throat> causes. But when he was, you know, young in, in Hungary, he was upset with the status quo and with this very rigid and, and, and old system, especially if you're an actor where you have to work for years and years and years to rise up in the ranks. And he wasn't that kind of person. He, he needed the success now. And that's, again, you see this other character who's maybe restless, who, you know, leaves Hungary, ends up fleeing Hungary, then moves to Germany, and then eventually moves to the US to try and, and succeed. Yeah, I, I think sometimes like once your heart gets broken by an organizing campaign, some people they're like, okay, and now I'm going to keep organizing and other people like their heart's broken and they're just never going to do it again. Right. Yeah. It didn't work out the way that he wanted where the, 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 you know, the socialists there ended up being persecuted and, and executed and everything went a really bad way. And so maybe he realized that that's, he doesn't want to risk his life again or, or do any of that stuff. And, Maybe it's better he didn't because it ended up after, this was a little after his heyday, but there was the whole McCarthy era where, where people were blacklisted and it could have been, that could have been him, but his career just I mean, waned, waned regardless. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But he's not somebody who I feel like people really heroized at all. And it's probably because of his drug addiction and the complications around was later in life, but it's sad because he really, he really did some incredible brave things. Yes, definitely. He was a really good Dracula. He was, <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at this. So are you predominantly interested in doing additional biographical stories moving forward or? They seem to be something people are interested in reading and I enjoy making them. So I'm definitely up for making more of these, but I also want to keep doing, it's been a long hiatus of, of me doing fiction, which I haven't done in maybe four or five years. And so I want to get back to that as well and see where that leads. One mm -hmm. feeds the other. And so that's, that's something that's nice that the things I learned from, from my nonfiction projects definitely contribute to the fiction projects. So you might find like a character in one of my my next books that that is like fiction, but sounds in 
sounds a lot, a lot like Lou Reed or something like that, because I can take inspiration from real people. Hmm. Do you feel closer to the people in the story now that you've finished it? Or do you feel like you need more space from them? Definitely need more space after every one of those projects. And I need a break because you, you go real deep and, and then you're just like, I can't. You, it's almost like a buffet and you just have gorged yourself on every fact that you can find. And then now you're, you're done, you're full. So I'm still listening to the music and I'm still going to love the music. But if you ask me to read another Lou Reed or John Cale biography, I'll probably skip it because <laughs> I just, I, I've, I'm done. But do you also, but, but I also just mean like from the sense of like how you feel towards them as subjects that you've delved into so much. Yeah, definitely, definitely feel like almost like someone I know, because I read so much about these people. And <clears throat> I feel like I know them. But even though I've never talked to any of them. So it's it's a strange feeling. It's almost like being a, a stalker where you you're just like, follow this person, listen to what they say, see how they interact with other people, but they don't know about your your own existence. Hmm. Do you feel like this book would have been possible to do before Lou's death? Yeah, why not? I don't think he would have disagreed with things in the book. I don't think he was too concerned with appearing as like someone who's really noble or yeah. he wasn't concerned with, with the cultivating a picture of himself as some amazing human being. But who knows? It's easier definitely to do it after the people pass away. Because other people are more likely to share things is really, I think. But oh, also, like, there isn't anything else that's going to happen. Yeah, I focus on a period that's in the 60s. So that would have been already in the past. But from a legal perspective, I feel like publishers are more likely to take on a book about someone who's deceased because legally it's just a lot safer. It's, it's I think... Hmm. You can't really defame someone who who's dead. But just the same, I, I make sure that everything is based on research and everything is, is backed mm -hmm. up. And there's nothing that I make up other than some of the dialogue. Of course, it's like speculative, but <clears throat> I don't I haven't created events or moments that never existed. Sure. But actually, that was something I was thinking about, because there's bits of dialogue, like, for example, with Warhol, because we have so much documented from him talking in casual conversation because of the nature of his art. But when you have particular, like, there's a little, there'll be like a dig in the script. I can't remember if it's Sterling. I think it, yeah, Sterling, I think, says to John when he's feeling Lou and Andy have become their own separate little world. He says, Lou and Andy should start their own band, the Sensational Sociopaths. And it's, yeah, are you, is that, is that kind of level of detail? Like when you're writing those words, which you know, couldn't possibly be documented because nobody is like capturing that level of minor banter. Like how do you come up with what is the appropriate way to voice somebody in a casual moment? I think, yeah, when you read enough interviews and enough information about a person, you can start to guess, take a guess about what their attitude would have been and... I had a scene where towards the end where John Kale meets Lou Reed after a long time that they haven't spoken. And <clears throat> I tried to, John Kale says, Lou, I haven't seen you in a long time. You don't answer my calls. And then Lou Reed says, 
my answering machine's broken. So that's the kind of answer that that I would I think could imagine him saying because he had an attitude and also he had a little bit of this dark sense of humor. So I just tried to come up with something that would be true to the character. I'm, I'm glad you did it with working on songs for Drella and them coming together and then splitting apart again. <laughs> it's if you if you can't include everything, it feels like it's a reasonably good place to conclude that particular story. Yeah, there's just too much to there's too much to include. So I, I just you have to pick and choose, especially when it's comics. Hmm. Are there any? darlings that you had to kill that you wish there could be in like an expanded edition someday or something like that? There's lots of stories, but you just can't put them all. When I was listening or reading about the recording of Drella, there were like all these moments where I think John Cale was saying that Lou Reed would smoke cigarettes and and just blow the smoke in in John's face and because maybe like John was trying to quit cigarettes or something like that and all oh that stuff God. is just it's just I wish I could have put that in but I can't do a 400 page comic and I don't think anyone's interested <laughs> in reading that so yeah there's mo- little moments but I think the, the moments that were very important and crucial I got them in yeah. No, it's it's a great way to tell the story. I should ask, what kind of stuff do you teach at SVA? I teach illustration. So I teach third year students like the the essentials of illustration because I'm also an illustrator. So and it's it's nice because it's it's easier. Definitely from what I've heard, it's easier than teaching comics. It's a really different thing to to be working on as well, to be teaching while also making your own work like that too. That is a point of SVA, right? SVA is, no, we're going to have working artists to teach this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the idea. And so you have most of the teachers are just teaching one or two classes because they have their projects to work on. But there's still some real big names teaching there. I think David Mezzucchelli still teaches there. And so, yeah. I appreciated the bibliography and filmography in the end. Lots of stuff I recognized. I saw Nico Icon when it came out in the theaters, actually, which I guess in some ways was a good preparation for reading this book because it is not an idealized portrait of her at all. I don't really think it quite actually goes as far as it needed to in terms of covering some of the problems, but it certainly made it clear that this is not, this is a person who's made some not so great things in their life. But I, I, I was good to see that movie get a call out in the in the filmography. Mm-hmm. What what yeah, was your great. starting point for for the research? What was your what was your starting point for the research on this? The I think just the biographies. So that's usually where I start. So with the Lou Reed biographies and then with John Kell's autobiography, those were the starting points. And yeah, mm-hmm. and then you go from there. So tell our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Yeah, you just put in my name, Karen Shadmi. I think my most active account is probably Instagram these days. But you can find me also a little bit on Twitter or X or whatever it's called. And uh, We will only call it Twitter here because fuck yeah, Elon Musk. Yeah, it's awful. It's and those are, yeah, those are probably the most, the most active places. Thanks so much for joining us. And to our listeners, thank you for supporting Graphic Policy Radio. You can always check in with me on, I'm on Blue Sky a lot now. My handle is L-E-V-I-N. That's Levin, like my last name. 
I'm still on the other site, Twitter some, but less than I used to be, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. We have more comics coverage coming your way as always. And thank you for joining me on the show. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.